The greatest gift that you can give your loved ones isn't a car or a house, it's a healthy version of you. And so if you're not healthy, you're not being a gift to those around you and those that you love. And so I just, I wanna love well, and I realized a part of me loving well was the healthiest version of yeah. me. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey there. Fun fact about this week's guest, she's actually one of Lindsay Noble's real-life best friends. Today, we're bringing an incredibly fun and empowering conversation with author, speaker, and pastor Bianca Juarez-Oltoff. During this conversation, recorded a few months ago, Bianca and Lindsay get honest about doing the work of emotional and mental health. Coming from her perspective as a faith leader and Latina woman, Bianca shares a bit about her experience with the cultural and religious stigmas around therapy and how therapy has changed her life. As an on-site alumni twice over, Bianca is a firm believer in doing the deep dives of emotional work, but also the everyday intentional work that leads to health and wholeness. Bianca is fiery, passionate, and pulling no punches in this episode. She's going to inspire you to do the work in your own life. Meet our friend, Bianca. Everyone, I'm so excited to be here today with my friend, Bianca. Hi, Linz. Hi. Bianca and I have known each other for over a decade. But but it doesn't feel like that, Linz. It, it just hit me today. Actually, when you're thinking about the podcast, I'm like, wait a minute, it's been a decade. And this is the longest stint that we haven't seen each other since knowing each other, which is kind of crazy. I know. I bet you're missing me a lot. I do. Legitimately, I do. I'm not just saying that because we're on the podcast. I really I, miss you. I miss you too. Uh, you're such a fun friend because you are such a great compliment to me. And I feel like a lot of times you sort of help bring out some of the like fun and um, <laughs> yeah, quirkiness in me. And it's so fun to be with you. And not like this is in a love fest, but like the good balance, even in Instagram numbers is that you make me go inside, you make me feel, you maybe go deep and I'm just like, oh, I just want to have a party. So I think like we are a good mix of each other. Yeah. One of my favorite things though, is you help connect me to onsite. So I guess it was like right. four or five years ago, I was going through a season mm-hmm. that was tough and you kept pushing me, nudging me to do onsite. And I remember so vividly being in the car with you driving around Southern California. And I had scheduled some time to talk to Miles on the phone. He was, you know, a friend acquaintance at the time, you knew him as well. And uh, he was like, oh, you're with Bianca, put it on speakerphone. And he was kind of coaching me through, should I go attend one of the programs here at Onsite or should I not? And it just was, I think so many of my Onsite memories early on are tied to you. I think like we both, we heard about a number of people and then I, I felt like I needed to go. And so I was able to go and I became, I think probably the number one evangelist for onsite. So then when you were kind of like in a sticky situation and just, you know, so many life changes at the time you had just moved and we, you used to live in Orange County where I now live. And so we had so many conversations about transition and life and what does that look like? And so for me, it just felt like such a natural fit. Like it helped me process so much in life. I could not help but share that with you as well. And so when you went and you loved it, then it just seemed like a great fit when like employment opportunities came. We both had this great experience. So when you told me that, I was like, you better take that job. So what was sort of the catalyst for you wanting to attend an on-site living center program 
probably five or six years ago. I don't want this to sound like an, an a commercial or an advertisement for OnSite. This is just like m- literally my story. I had heard about OnSite from a couple of people at the time, and um, I was experiencing a big transition. So a little bit about my back end is born and raised in Los Angeles uh, a decade ago, roughly about the time that we met. I met, uh, I married my husband and moved to Orange County. I instantly became a stepmom. I worked for an NGO. There was lots of hours poured into work. In addition to that, I have a faith background. So my husband and I were super involved in the church that we were going to at the time. And so there was just a lot going on. And in the midst of a lot going on where everything changed. And so I just felt like, actually, I want to say it was me that, you know, I made this decision that I'm going to get healthy. It was actually my husband who said, yeah, I think it's about time you go to onsite. And I made up every excuse, you know, like we don't have money. I can't take a week off. Like I feel selfish. This feels like I just need to get over. I'm being a baby. And I hate to admit that I was just probably in a very unhealthy emotional state. So psychologically, I was fine. Spiritually, I still think I was doing okay. But emotionally, it was like hot mess express. And those closest to me knew how much it was affecting me. And, um, what the way, the best way that I explain it to like my friends and family, when we talk about it, I jokingly say it's like summer camp for emotionally disturbed adults, because you literally like you have roommates and you have a schedule and you're in the middle of nowhere and you really secretly miss your mom and dad. Um, and you can't talk to them. It, it literally felt like summer camp. However, I think the better way to explain it is that it gives you space to hear what you're feeling. Because in the midst of a cacophony of voices and calendar requests and text messages and emails, like it's really hard to hear what you're feeling yeah. and the space and latitude to get away and really, uh, really wrestle through a lot of what we don't and or don't want to or can't face in the moments of crisis. And so I packed my bags. And you know what? I, one of the things that I absolutely loved is... I think that there's people that hear about this and think like, well, I'm not too sure it's for me. And so on a whim, I called on site and I was going to be like that annoying person that was just like, I have a bunch of questions. And Miles called me back. Miles, Uh. Miles Adcox. The intentionality and like, I don't want to say customer care, but essentially just love of people really demonstrated like, gosh, these people are the real deal. And we were able to talk. I was able to express a little bit what was going on. I think he saw through the BS in like 2.5 seconds. And he's like, yeah, I think this will be great for you. And so I, I, I want to be very like cautious with my words, but the experience changed my life. Mm. Um, it, it, it changed my life because I couldn't hide. I, I, I couldn't hide. You, if, if you want it to change you, you have to be willing to change. And yeah. so um, it was a great experience. Yeah, I did my Living Centered program too in the midst of a season of a lot of transition that I sort of was feeling overwhelmed and not dealing well with it. And then it's been cool because, you know, transition and change is going to keep happening. So it isn't that, oh, I maybe I need to have like a routine of doing counseling in the midst of all those things. But it's nice too, because you I learned skills that have made me stronger and more centered feeling. So when transition and change comes, I'm ready for it or more grounded in the midst of it. Oh, 100%. In fact, when I talk to my friends about it, they're like, well, what is like, what's the difference between like onsite and like counseling? 
I loved my counselors. Like I, I really, um, I've been new to like therapy probably within the last decade. When we first got married, I just, I felt like we needed like a third party moderator for our marriage in the beginning. First two years of marriage, it was a little rough. Um, so I, I have no problem with great therapy, great therapy practices and great therapists. But what onsite is, is it, for me, it felt like a year's worth of counseling distilled into six days. And it's because you just, you know, when you go to therapy, you just begin to scratch the surface and then you're like, okay, time's up and I'll see you next week. And if you're fortunate and you can financially afford going to therapy every single week, I would say you can distill like a year's worth of counseling and therapy practices in a week. Now I I couldn't afford to go to therapy every week. So I was going once a month or once three weeks and it just felt like it was taking a really long time to uncover a lot of stuff where Again, I was there, couldn't run away, couldn't hide, had no coping mechanisms, had no phone, had no laptop, had no work, like nothing. And I felt like I really, really scratched the surface. And like, here's what I will say, Linz, is that it's the Living Center program isn't a a magic pill. It's not the quick fix. It just... what it does is you're trying to deconstruct so much in therapy and then you're left with the rubble and then you have to clean out the rubble and then you have to try to rebuild. What onsite does is it's a demolition, clean out, lay the foundation. Everything post that, you still got work to do. So it it was, it was a great part of the healing process for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. So you've mentioned Matt, your husband a couple of times. And one of the things that is so fun about knowing you is like, Obviously, people on the podcast can already tell like you're larger than life. You've got tons of energy. You are a little dramatic. Talking about, I don't know you're what you're hilarious. talking about, Lindsay, okay? <laughs> You've got um, that great Latina energy that we know and love. Um, and your husband, Matt, is a little different in personality. And uh, what are you talking about? The German, the German Matt Oldhoff? Yes, he is. He's not very emotive and he's good with the finances and always good with the time. So yeah, we're totally different. Yeah. <laughs> and when y'all got married, he came as a package deal with two kids. Yeah. Yeah. Parker and Ryan. And I think you, I think you had two rules when you were dating prior to Matt that you weren't going to marry someone's probably with kids and somebody that was a pastor. Were the oh, two. Yeah. I said, okay. No, Things so my you three were not roles, looking for. the three rules were, I am not going to marry a pastor. I'm not marrying someone's divorce and I'm not marrying someone with kids. Lindsay, I got all three. Okay. And so like other people might consider that like baggage, but I was like, yeah, but it's like Louis Vuitton baggage. You know, it's like, it, it has value. And I had no clue what I was getting into. Yeah. And you and Matt obviously love each other, but I'm sure that the differences are what make you great, but Mm. also in the day-to-day can be hard to navigate. Totally. Totally. So again, you had mentioned, so I am of Hispanic descent and Matt is of German descent. Now, I don't want to get too much into like culture stereotypes, but stereotypes are based on a preponderance of truth. Okay. So like my family, we're chaotic. We can't show up places on time. We love to throw great parties. We are very loud. We love, we love through food. So we eat more happy. We eat when we're sad. We're eating, we're upset. And we we feed people to like demonstrate love. And like Matt's family, they're like quiet, zen, like even kill, always on time, always pay their bills, you know, the whole thing. So coming together was a culture clash. And then stepping into step parenting was like a life. And Los Angeles is very close to Orange County, but they're very, very different. So Los Angeles is like, everyone wears black and is emo. And we complain about 405, which is our freeway. And then in Orange County, people drink like oat milk and their thighs don't touch. And everyone has like a designer car. So like, it was like, 
culture shock. And then it was subculture shock of like moving, leaving my friends, my family, my church, and then joining into this new ecosystem. It was like jarring. In addition to that, I started working for um, an anti-human trafficking organization. And so you're ingesting so much just darkness in the midst of life change. I put on 20, 25 pounds in the seven years that I worked there. I was a stepmom. There was just a lot going mm. on. And it was it was interesting. What I didn't realize though, Lynn, is how much um like I'm just I'm I'm resilient, which is a great attribute. I am a non-quitter, which is a great ad- attribute, but those two things in the middle of crisis kind of numbs you out and that's what I was not uh, aware of. And so when I was single, it didn't really matter because it was just affecting me, but now it's affecting like my kids and my husband. And so after I went to Living Center program, um, I came back and was like talking about onsite, how much I loved it. And then probably, I think it was maybe like two years ago, I, you and I, you would, you actually, you were working at onsite now. And, and then yeah. you told me about basically the coupleship, program. the coupleship program. And I came back and I told to Matt and I said, Hey, I think this is at that point, we've been married eight years. We love each other. We have great communication. We even have like our own couples counselor, but there was just some issues that I feel like, Hey, I think we need to just spend time without technology or even with people who don't know our story. And we went and now for those that are like on the fence, like, I don't want this therapy stuff. I think Matt was a little hesitant just about like it, experiential therapy, but he went and he loved it. I think anyone can walk away with um, something to learn from even that. So it's, it's beyond living centered. The living center program prepared me for like doing more work and wanting to experience more of what onsite offered. Yeah. I feel like I sound like a shameless commercial right now, Lens, know, but I'm, like- I'm telling you like for the podcast listeners that are listening, I, Lindsay and I did not discuss what we were going to talk about. I just am an ardent supporter of onsite. I love it. I tell all my friends, my family about it. I have my own podcast and I told them about it. I want to be careful with this language and cautious with this language, but it really did change my life because the greatest gift that you can give your loved ones isn't a car or a house. It's a healthy version of you. And so if you're not healthy, you're not being a gift to those around you and those that you love. And so I just, I want to love well. And I realized a part of me loving well was the healthiest version of me. So practically you and Matt, very different and you've attended coupleship. You've done, I'm sure other work just to help see each other in the midst of good times and bad times and Mm -hmm. conflict. And so what are some practical things that you do to stay centered in your marriage? So like I said, I I don't think that onsite is like the quick quick fix for everything. I think it brings a lot of stuff to the surface. We're able to demolish and clean out. So it was after coupleship that I told Matt, we need to have consistent time where we meet with a counselor. And so again, I would say that our marriage is dysfunctional, but by all means, there's tons of room to grow. And so both my husband and I are strong-willed. We're both firstborn children. We are strivers and drivers. I'm an Enneagram 7-8. He's an Enneagram 8-7, which means that we're either catalytic or catastrophic. And um, our marriage has exemplified both. Uh, So I think for us, it was committing to finding someone locally that we can meet with on a, at the very least monthly basis, based on what we could afford in various seasons. But we see her two to three times a month and she's a godsend. So that, that regularity for us has been a game changer. Again, I am a person of faith and we are people of faith. And so we've instituted, uh, it was actually a practice that we've kind of picked up from coupleship now that I think about it. You know, when you're, you're on onsite, it's like, they take away your cell phone. 
they take away your laptop. You have no contact with the outside world. And it all felt very like scary. But what it did is it forced us to have like slow mornings. And both Matt and I are early risers. We hit the ground running. I mean, Linz, you know this, like I'm up before you and you are on, you know, Central Standard Time. I'm on Pacific Standard Time. I just, we both love mornings. But what we realized there on site is that we love mornings together. And so what a practice that we now pick up and for me, I, I, I'm embarrassed to even admit this. I feel so cheesy even saying this, but like, oh gosh, I'm going to say it out loud. And this is the horrible name. I don't even know how it started, but I call it cuddle time. So I text him. He's up at around 4, 4.30. I'm up at around 5.30. And so we have 15 minutes of just unadulterated, no phone, nothing, where you just spend time together. And it most likely ends with like a quick prayer. And that's how we start our day. So those two oh, practices- that's awesome. Have, I feel so cheesy. I'm brown, so you can't tell when I'm blush, but like I'm blushing <laughs> right now. I'm so embarrassed. I say cuddle time, but it's a morning practice. I mean, oh, actually, I like that word better. And then uh, I would say the last thing is uh, this therapy talk of what I heard you say, this cliche catchphrase of what I heard you say, because apparently I'm not a good listener. So then I have to repeat back what I heard people say. And so Matt could say, I think you were being rude. And then I say, what I heard you say is that you hate my living guts. And then it gives uh, some space and time to process and you clarify like, no, that's not what I said. This is what I said. That's might have been what you heard. That's what I said. So I think those three things in, in our marriage has been like a big game changer. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Bianca and Lindsay. If you like me wanted to hear more about the coupleship program after hearing Bianca share her experience, I wanna invite you to stick around at the end of this interview. I'm bringing you an interview within an interview. I thought it would be a fun opportunity to sit down with our Associate Clinical Director, Christine Jackson, to learn a little bit more about this offering from OnSite. She shares about the beautiful impact of doing coupleship work within a group context, and I think you're really gonna enjoy it. So stick around after Bianca's interview to hear my conversation with Christine. So you mentioned that you work in ministry. Yes. In the faith space. And I feel like a lot of people in that space sort of have feelings around therapy or emotional health work, that it is a substitute for maybe spiritual health and spiritual practices. Right. How do you sort of hold the two together or what are your feelings on that? Okay. So I have lots of feelings about this. So you're going to have to like give me hand signals if I like start talking too much or too long about this, but I'll, I'll kind of synthesize it and distill it in like the simplest form. So there's a question and then there's like a meta question. There's a meta narrative I want to address as well, like in the face space. So for those that don't know, I'm, I am a Christian. I was raised in a Christian household. My dad's a pastor, which is why I said I would never marry a pastor and I married a pastor. So I like am generationally involved in, in church planting and church building. I, what I'm seeing is this, um, and it's shifting, it is shifting, but it's shifting really slow. I think the narrative for me growing up, you know, Latino culture, it's stigmatized, but then also just generally like the people who needed counseling and therapy were the people that were mentally ill or mentally unstable, where now new research is coming out. And even if it's just a chemical imbalance or if it's psychological trauma, big T or lowercase t trauma, whether it is like upbringing, I think people now are a little bit more okay with it, but it still feels as something as when you're in need or in crisis. When, if we view this as like a tune-up, if we take care of our mental health, our cars, or the mental uh, capacity of our, uh, or our car being like our mental capacity, it won't, we won't run it into the ground. And so I think the more that we normalize, the more we talk about it, where it's not something, ooh, where we talk about in hidden dark corners or, you know, 
in prayer circles, oh, we have to pray for Lindsay because she went to counseling. I think the more that we normalize it and make it part and parcel of just helping us process. I mean, it's scriptural. This is going to lead me to like the second point. Sometimes I think that people say, I don't need a counselor or I don't need a therapist because I'm going to speak to my pastor about it. I say this as a licensed pastor. There is clinical training that is needed to unpack lowercase and capital T trauma, small traumas, microaggressions, or big traumas, um, macroaggressions that I do not think lay pastors are equipped to deal with. When it comes to spiritual nature, when it comes to systematic theology, when it comes to ecclesia, when it comes to eschatology, sure, speak to your pastor. If we're dealing with trauma, I do believe that the word of God is powerful. And for those that are not of faith, please just you know eat the meat and spit out the bones. But I do believe the word of God is powerful. I do believe in the community of God. I believe in faith, in the faith sector. I also believe that there is power in people who are trained. So I can go to a pastor and say, I'm having, you know, high phasing. But if I go to a doctor, they could tell me about lifestyle changes and medication that could help me. It's the same thing with psychiatric care. It's the same thing with with, uh, counseling and therapy. And so I just want to kind of like, let there be a, a, a normalizing of the power of great licensed people who are trained to help you unpack trauma. And then this is the last thing that I'm going to say, the danger for those that are involved with the faith space, The danger is that sometimes we have to look like we have it all together. Well, we have Mm -hmm. God on our side. So we are perfect, polished and pretty. Our thighs don't touch. Our children are completely obedient. We never have marital issues. And I think that that's what people in this hyper-polished, oversaturated, very beautiful, uh, blessed curse of social media is that we've perpetuated the stereotype that people of faith have to have their whole life together. And it's becoming more and more apparent that there's so many people in the faith sector, not just in Christianity, in Catholicism, and the Mormon church, where these people of faith on pedestals have had this life of secrecy, where I think sometimes if we just created a space to normalize that these people of faith still are jacked up, tore off from the floor up, and they need help then I think that there we would see less of people falling because of like things done in secret. Now, that's my two cents. Again, I'm going to leave I'm going to leave the psychological da- data to the professionals, but I would say in the faith space, it sometimes feels a little bit scary and we don't want to talk about it, but then it's leaving leaders in the faith space to do things in secret and maybe like deal with trauma or mourning or pain in unhealthy ways. Yeah. I love too, and um, your latest book, you had sort of a therapist sort of speak <laughs> into different topics that you were talking about and the sort of continually pointing to like, hey, I'm going to tell you about the world and my experience and the word of God and how I apply that. But then I'm, I want this expert as a resource. So I, I loved- When of- I talk about emotional health, it's not something that I just, you know, pontificate about. It's something that I really want everyone to really practice in their life. And I know a lot of people that are just like, it's a financial thing. It's a financial thing. And coming out of 2020, coming out of COVID, coming out of job loss, I get it. I get it. But in the way that I spoke to Matt about it, when we were first married, we were struggling financially. We were, I was working for an NGO. He was working for church. We didn't have finances. And I told him, I said, therapy is expensive, but divorce is a hell of a lot more expensive. So baby, let's make an investment into our therapist. And we did. And we're still here and we're so grateful. And I just kind of want to remove excuses from people and also make therapy or even just wisdom very accessible. So yes, uh, Dr. Deb Gorton is a clinical psychologist and a psychologist 
and psychotherapist. And um, I just can't think more highly of like the power of license and train people to speak into how we can get healthy. As you have pursued emotional health, have you felt supported in that journey? Have you found therapists of color that have supported you along the way or their voices that you've listened to that have helped you sort of with self-acceptance around your cultural identity? It's so funny. And now that I'm thinking about it, as you're talking to me, I realized every single therapist that I've had has been white. Yeah. Every single therapist. I don't, um, and it's not by choice. I just... I, I don't think on minority culture, but I will speak to you at least for Brown. And I know I don't, again, I don't want to have general sweeping stereotypes, but I know for Brown and black um, one educational stats are lower. Um, graduate school is even lower percentage of people of color to graduate from than to go on to get like secondary or tertiary degrees. So I already know that the amount of Brown, black and Asian people are already disproportionate just because of academics, but then you take a field like psychology where it is stigmatized. I think I can only speak from the Hispanic narrative. It is very stigmatized. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't actually don't know one person of color who is a therapist. That's funny that we even talk about this. So that is the long answer of saying, I don't think I've had a whole lot of therapists help me process that. I mm -hmm. think that what therapy has done is maybe rec recognize and understand and I think the beautiful thing is part of it is it, it was like my white educated coming from an affluent family husband who called me out and said, you're ashamed of being Brown and you're ashamed of being a woman. Mm. And this was probably two years into marriage. And I was like, how dare you? You know, nothing about my life. I mean, we, we've been married for two years and we dated for two years previously, but I just felt super attacked. But what it did is it opened up like this, this scab that would not heal because I did have a lot of shame, a shame about my immigrant dad, shame about educational pitfalls, shame about being poor, that I felt like I wanted to, shed that like the skin of a snake. And yet it was branded on me. It, it, it's, it's, it's me and I couldn't get rid of it. And then I began to celebrate that. So I think that, no, I didn't have a person of color walk me through that from a therapeutic side, but I think that therapy helped me process some of the pain, the loss, the trauma, and maybe celebrate how that actually has shaped me into who I am today. Yeah. And what has that freedom from the shame like afforded you? Like, how do you feel like you've lived differently? I feel like I can be the truest version of myself. Mm. And I don't think that I've ever felt that. Maybe it's age. I don't think it is because I have a lot of friends and family who are my age and older and still walking around with an unidentified sense of shame or embarrassment or hiding or whatever. Um, but I think it has allowed me to be the truest version of me and not just owning it, like, yeah, I is who I is, but like celebrating it. I am so proud to be the daughter of an immigrant. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Oh. I am so proud. Oh. And that uh, I'm so proud to be able to go to school and be afforded so many opportunities that so many people haven't. And I think I was even ashamed of that because it felt like a sense of pride. Like, oh, you got out of the hood. When the truth of the matter is, is that has made me more passionate. Just two weeks ago, I was able to speak at an inner city school in South Central Los Angeles, all black and brown students, and to be proud of my story. And then for them to say, how did you get out? What did you do? So to be able to be in such an emotionally healthy place and show a different picture to students who otherwise 
nobody would care about was a gift. And I don't think I would be here if I didn't celebrate, own, and be proud of the work that I've done, the blessings that I have, and just the hard work that it's taken to get to this place emotionally, physically, academically, and financially um, has been a gift. And I don't think I would have been able to give because I had nothing in me to give out. I think uh, just having been friends for a long time and watched you in the midst of releasing yourself from some of the shame, it's been so beautiful because I think, and I wouldn't want to, put this word in your mouth, but it maybe that it felt like your past was um, something you'd let people into and it felt real tender. And now it feels like something you like, it like really is like who you are. And it's yeah. this like, it colors everything you do. And I think that it feels like you're very like even the Latina parts of you that maybe had been diminished. Totally, totally. <laughs> are like so fun and vibrant and like just more, I, that we all get to celebrate that more, I think. It's just cool to see you sort of lean into it and celebrate your fullness. Totally, totally. And then the thing that I'm hearing now, which is fascinating and fun, is other people of color coming up to me and saying, Thank for being the fullness of who you are because it makes me feel like I could be the fullest of who I am. And I realized that if I wasn't in a place of emotional and mental health to be able to celebrate some of this, I don't think I would have, I don't think I actually, I know I will, I would not have been in a place to celebrate and share and create pathways for other people to celebrate how they were uniquely made and just their unique personalities. So that's been like such a fun, fun honor and privilege. It's really cool. Tell me about, you are a twin. Yes. What is it like growing up with a twin? And then how do you like move? Like, how has that shaped how you are in the world? Having like a partner that you grew up with that was a sidekick. Okay. So because this is an on-site podcast, I can talk a little bit of like the psych side of it because that's been another recent discovery as well. So uh, born and raised a twin love her to bits pieces. Most we talk every day. I mean, we have just such, we were so close as children and it's, it is somewhat common for twins to develop their own language. We were definitely one of the twins that developed our own language and this might freak people out, but we're the twins that like share in feelings. Um, you, it's me actually, it's not really her. <laughs> so, um, one time she was getting an injection and she's phobic. She's phobia of needles. She was getting an injection and I reached to my hand, my arm, right where the injection was. I was like, ow, ow, ow. And Jasmine felt nothing. So I took her pain. And then another time, Lens, this was our uh, our 11th birthday. We had our 11th birthday party at Skate Junction. It's like an indoor skate rink back in the days, you know, in the nineties when the uh, skate rinks were cool for kids. And she was on one side of the rink and I was on the complete other side of the rink. I didn't even know where she was. And all of a sudden I feel this immense pain in my leg. And like, I hobble off the skating rink and I see my mom's red hair. And I like wheel over to her and I said, mom, mom, my leg. And she said, will you stop it? Your sister just broke her leg. That's and so I weird. felt Jasmine's pain. Totally. Right. So I will say that there's this unique bond that twins have. And so when Jasmine got married, and this is not the case for all twins, but it is the case for a lot of twins because my therapist actually was like, hey, I think you have some issues with like the whole twin thing that we need to un unpack. And so in the process of that, I realized that Jasmine was my first love as in like the person that you really bond with even more so than 
my parents. I'm very, very close to my family. I mean, a lot of people deep, like we do everything together, right? So we're a naturally close family, but because probably being in the same womb with Jasmine, having the same playmate as Jasmine, um, having her be my defender, she was always the one who, she was the vocal twin. Uh, I think our roles have kind of switched now, but she was a vocal twin, she was my defender, all this other stuff. And so that was so important in forming how I view relationships, how I view love, how I feel protection, how I feel love. And I think one of the difficult parts was when she got married, it felt like, and I didn't realize it. I had no clue because I was so happy. I love her, her husband. I love him. And I loved him when they got married, but it felt like I was going through a divorce. So we literally split, we shared everything. We shared makeup, shoes, clothes. And so it was half of the clothes, half the makeup, half the jewelry, half of, we lived together. So all, every, everything was half. So it felt like an, a divorce. I didn't realize at the time, but I was suffering massive amounts of depression. And I couldn't, I knew I was not the jealous sister. I knew that, but I didn't have the language articulate what was going on. Now, in retrospect, I realized how close we were and how uh, that first, what I've discovered in counseling and therapy is that the first relationship, that first real L-O-V-E that you experience, yep, that attachment dictates how you do relationships. And so I realized in marriage, when I started looking at attachment issues with my sister, that I wanted to feel love the way that Jasmine loved me, not the way that Matt loved me. And so once I was able to articulate how I wanted to be loved, and once I was able to articulate like the dysfunction in that, I think it really did shift and change our marriage. And dare I say, it shifted and changed the relationship that Matt, my husband, has with Jasmine, my twin sister. So, I mean, it was was a win-win-win all around. But you know what it is? I love to accomplish. If I could take things off, like, oh, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do curriculum. We're going to start a church. We're going to do this. I'm going to have a prison initiative that's going to resource the incarcerated. So maybe, yeah, actually, okay, saying that out loud, whoa, moment of learning. Maybe I am an achiever. Um, But okay, yeah, so carry on. Yeah, I guess it's more for you. I I mean, that's a helpful distinction. It's about like trying fun new things and seeing how you can do with them. Yeah. (laughs) And that gets you up early and has you going late at night. And so you are accomplishing a lot. Yes. How do you sort of create space for yourself in the midst of that? And like rest, what does rest look like? So I can't lie because you're my friend and you actually know. In fact, we've had multiple conversations where I call you and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this idea and this is what I'm going to do. And then you being your calm, zen, rational self or like, what do you like? Oh, I'm taking nothing off. I'm just gonna move everything around. I, you know what I'm gonna get? I'm gonna get a bigger plate. And you're like, that's not smart. So um, I will say this is an area I've struggled with my whole life. I think like more is more, like not less is more, more is more and more is better. So that's, it's always been a struggle. So self-care for me, now um, I'm at a different stage of life. So I'm afraid that somebody in their twenties, you know, I'm, I'm ending my, I'm ending my thirties, heading into my forties. And I don't want someone in their twenties and thirties to think like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I think it's been a long term, a, a long time really building right. into this and creating finances around this. But I definitely take a personal alone vacation every year. It's only two nights. It's only three days. And I don't go to like France, you don't go somewhere local, but just time for me, with me, by me, by myself. And um, that's where I really fight for a word for the year, my intention that's going to calibrate me. I take novels because I love novels. Kid who couldn't read, I'm like obsessed now. And I sleep. So that is something I do every single year. And it's a financial investment, but not a huge financial investment. Uh, Another thing is personal therapy. So both Matt and I have a 
a therapist, but then I have, I meet with a therapist every other week. So that's self-care for me. And um, I know this doesn't feel like self-care for a lot of people. But for me, I love to work out. Like, I just feel like it's cathartic. It's purging. Yeah. It's good so, for your health. It to- totally is. Totally is. I can be feeling all the feels in the world. I, I just want to like beat everyone down. I want to cuss out you and your mama. And then I hop on my Peloton bike and then I'm okay. I'm okay. I just got to release it. So I love to work out. And then another big value, which I didn't realize is that cooking is so cathartic. And I know that it's a chore for some people to me, it's self-care. If I could feed people that I love and feed them well, it's, it's a gift. And that's really how I'm in this season, at least really fighting to be normal. Yeah, we are talking in the middle of such a chaotic season of COVID, like you typically are traveling a ton for work and speaking. And so how have you stayed sane in this year? I feel like I have to do everyone like a, just be honest that everyone this year was an immense year of loss. Like I had to lay off staff. I uh, had like no income coming in. And so we're leading a church. I'm letting go of business. I have an NGO where I resource the incarcerated. We do conferences in prisons and jails across the United States that had to stop. Mm. I mean, it was just like loss after loss after loss after loss. And so I feel like what is, what is, I want to be careful, but yeah, what's coping now and what is self-care now probably hasn't been what it's been in the past. So for me in this season, it has been counseling on Zoom, cooking for my family, and on occasion, breaking quarantine and finding some restaurant that randomly happens to be open, squeezing a meal to go, Mm. and um, just really fighting for love in in a season that feels like there's been a lot of love lost. Yeah. And I love that you called it grief, you know, that you're, yeah. there's been a lot of loss and a lot of things that you need to grieve. Yeah. Do you feel like you do that process well? Like, can you feel the feelings of loss? And I think that a part of the emotional health process is I could feel very fast. I, I have like high feelings, but I couldn't recover fast. So a blow like took me out. And I think because of the work that I've done, I'm realizing it's not on me. I have to be able to get back up, get healthy and own what grief looks like. And sometimes grief is longer and sometimes it's a fast bounce back, but I have to give myself tons of grace. And what I'm learning in this season is that the grace that I want to give myself, I also want to give to others. And we we mourn differently. We grieve differently. We process differently. And I think uh, that being acutely aware of that has helped me love people better, especially in this season. Yeah. I've realized I personally try to move to acceptance so quickly. Like I try to skip over everything and move to acceptance. And like, I've really tried to around some losses this year have tried to like sit in the anger and the sadness and, and allow myself grace to go back to them when it's necessary and just be aware of those feelings and not trying to push them down, but absolutely give them space and acknowledgement. It's a hard thing to do for some of us. Very hard, very hard. Definitely. (laughs) What else, Bianca? Anything that you're sort of learning in this season? Um, I think maybe the last thing that I would just say is there is, it's kind of going back to like the culture conversation. There is something to be said about adversity. And so for those that maybe feel like they are facing adversity, or maybe they feel like they've been knocked down, or maybe they just feel like they've been knocked out. I think the beautiful thing that I would love for people to walk away with is that when we, 
And as difficult as it sounds, this is not easy. I'm not trying to make this easy, but the more that we practice getting back up when we've been knocked down, the easier it becomes. And resiliency is part of a healing process and resiliency is part of growth and resiliency is part of maturity. And so I I just want to leave us with like, if you're listening to this podcast, you want to do the work. At the very least, you're listening to uh, people process life and pain and growth. And that's a great first step. I want to just encourage anyone that it feels like whether it's adversity, whether it's loss, whether it's grief, we will make it through it. And we have to find mode and practices to deal and cope in ways that are healthy. And I love that this is part of that process and will be part of that process for so many people listening. I love that. And the idea of resiliency that like acknowledging all the things we've already made it through, that we have what it takes to make it through whatever is in front of us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for sticking around. Here is my short conversation with Associate Clinical Director Christine Jackson about Onsite's five and a half day coupleship experiential group program on our campus in Cumberland Furnace, Tennessee. Hey, Christine, thanks so much for jumping on with me. Um, I wanted to talk to you because I feel like you are the expert of all things coupleship. I wanted to just pull the veil back and talk to you. So what is Onsite's coupleship program? Thank you, Mackenzie. I appreciate being the expert Though I think it's my love for all things coupleship that might make me know this program so well to love it. Coupleship is a five and a half day workshop experience at Onsite. And no doubt there might be some mystery around it because I don't think there's too many things out there like it. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean that typically there are not a lot of group experiences where partners come together and then find some healing in an intimate setting amongst other couples because there's an incredible learning and vulnerability and strengths that happens mm-hmm. from the collective of people coming together around that way. Yeah, and I think you said there's not very many group experiences like this. Uh, that could be a little scary too. What would you say to someone who maybe is nervous about doing a group experiential program like this? Yes, fair. I think that there is something that happens when people come together in the place of vulnerability of being willing to be seen as my partnership. And that becomes the clients, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So if I walk into a coupleship program with maybe three other couples, then all of a sudden what happens is a big sigh of relief that I am not alone. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, there'll be someone that I can connect to that gets it, why I see it this way. And I am heard rather than trying to vie for the one attention and perspective of a therapist. It's almost as if I begin to find myself in this beautiful place of healing because the vulnerability that people have come into this room with engenders a healthy respect for others a deep appreciation for the love that's binding and that we're trying to either refine or build again, mm. or perhaps even strengthen as I go into a new phase of my partnership. Mm, that's awesome. And we have a couple of different couple offerings at Onsite. What would you say is the biggest difference between a coupleship program and an intensive, a couple's intensive? I truly believe that the difference is that collective. And I think that is an essential ingredient of the healing A couple's intensive is more often uh, for couples who are having some issues that it's too big to have a group experience for, Mm -hmm. whether that's beyond an affair process or 
I'm not positive we're on the same page in terms of our commitment to each other. So there's something about it that I need the space and time to heal with a therapist and my partner that will not be part of a group experience or would overtake it if I tried. Mm. So it sounds even like the goals are different. So who is a good fit for coupleship? I truly believe that coupleship is for people who have a common goal. Might not be Mm. on the same page, but a common goal. So if the common goal is we're not on the same page and we want to build upon the love that Mm. we once felt, that's a common goal. Or a common goal might be we know that we're not communicating in a way that's effective. In fact, feels more destructive than constructive. That's a common goal. And in coupleship, I think more often than not, there's the goal that to enter as a partnership and come out better and still as this partnership. And in a couple's intensive, it's fair if the two people are on such different pages that their goals may even be different and that they may even feel the partnership differently. All right. Well, as we wrap up, I would love to just hear from you. What is one encouragement you might have for someone who is considering coming to a coupleship with their partner? I would say my encouragement is there are a small percentage of people in the entire world that are willing to do the big, brave thing of lean towards their partnership in a way that wants to work on it. And I think it's one of the most valuable things. And there's an innate drive within each of us to want to be seen and held in a coupleship process or a partnership. So I appreciate anyone who walks towards coupleship in a brave, big way. And whichever way serves you best, I truly hope that you find love throughout the journey of finding even more love in your coupleship. Hmm. Well, thanks so much, Christine. Thanks for taking a few minutes with us. And if anything that she shared today has your wheels spinning and has you intrigued, we'd love for you to connect with our admissions team. You can call them at 1-800-341-7432, or you can head to our website, onsiteworkshops.com, and just learn a little bit more about this particular program or one of our other offerings. If you want to learn more about OnSite and our various in-person, online, and digital offerings, please go to onsiteworkshops.com. At OnSite, we have seen that enhancing emotional health changes lives and helps us collectively create a more empathetic and more self-aware world. Our unique and proven therapeutic framework and healing hospitality can help you find the emotional wellness you deserve. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.